to open up God's word this morning. And as we do that, I want you to consider very briefly, have you ever been the first person to really get something? You know, you're working in a group setting, you're working with some other people, maybe you're being trained how to do something, you're doing a craft, you're in a school setting, and you unwittingly, unbeknownst to you, you are the first person to finish. Have you ever had this experience? If you have it, you can just fake it. It's okay. I'm not, I'm not interrogating you. So you, you, if you've ever had this experience, invariably, the teacher, the instructor, the person leading notices you finished. And they're like, ha-ha, we're going to make an example out of you. And so they come over and they go, hey, everyone, look at this person. And there is like all the eyes in the room just go, whoomph, and they're looking at you. And you, unwittingly, you finished first. You got it. You understood what is going on. And I want you to take that feeling, that emotion, and I want you to translate that into our passage this morning, because this particular individual we're about to study is kind of the first person to get the right answer. And I don't even think he necessarily knew that he did. But Jesus singles him out and says, hey, everybody, look at this guy. This is incredible. And and there is this group collective focus on this person. And I think he's a very fascinating individual because what he gets right, and he is known by his job title, he is a centurion, and we'll get into that in a moment. He is known by his job title, and he gets right what it is to have faith in Jesus. He gets right what it looks like to to understand what faith in Jesus is going to cause us to do. Like he gets that when you have faith in Jesus, there's certain things that are going to happen. And he he gets that far before anybody else has gotten it. And so if you've been with us for any measure of time, we've been in the Gospel of Luke, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to the Gospel of Luke. And I very briefly, and again, I want to underscore very briefly, want to recap some key passages that relate to what we're about to study. I want to take a few moments and consider a few things in the Gospel of Luke, and I'm not going to read verse by verse, but I just want to draw your attention to chapters 1 through 3, and we have a figure, a person, his name is John the Baptist. He shows up, and he is of great importance. He is, if you would truly get to it, one of the first people who really gets who Jesus is. But by the time we hit chapter 7, where we're about to go, John the Baptist has a few questions. I don't know how much he's really doubting. I think he's pretty confident. But nonetheless, John the Baptist is a key figure in our discussion this morning. The next thing I want to draw to your attention is in Luke chapter 4. In Luke chapter 4, Jesus begins his ministry in verse 14. And then he continues ministering. And one of the first places he goes is to Nazareth. He goes to his hometown. And his hometown squarely rejects him. They say, we know who you are. And they run him out of town and try to kill him. And then at that point, verse 31 through 41 of chapter 4, we see Capernaum. Capernaum is of great consequence to our study this morning because it's the same location that the centurion will be. So it's helpful to be reminded, just looking at the passage, you don't need to read every verse. You see the word authority occur multiple times in verses 31 through 41. We also see that he's healing someone who's sick and that he has power over the demonic. There's different key themes here that have begun here in chapter 4, and now chapter 5, there's one more thing I want to draw to your attention. In chapter 5, verse 17 through 26, we have Jesus healing the paralytic, and we have an interesting 
pattern that begins to emerge where we see the healings of Jesus, we see the, the conversation and subject of sin, and then we see this word faith pop up. This is in, he, in it, Hebrews, sorry, in Luke chapter five, we see the word faith occur for the first time in verse 17 and following in that section. And we're gonna see faith occur yet again the second time in our passage. Finally, the last thing we need to keep in mind, and I promise I'm almost done trying to re recap some of the things that if we were reading this, this, this account from the beginning, we would have fresh in our minds. I'm just quickly refreshing our minds here. We have the Sermon on the Plain in Luke chapter six, verse 17, all the way to verse 49, which is the verse that precedes where we were. And in this sermon, Jesus instructs his hearers about what it is to have faith in Jesus and what faith in Jesus looks like. So we would naturally expect the conclusion right after that to start seeing some stories, some examples of what is it to have faith in Jesus. And that's, that's exactly what we get with the centurion. So if you're there, join me. Please stand as we read Luke chapter 1. Or, Chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. I'm going to be reading from the ESV. Um, you're welcome to read along with any uh, other translation that you have. If you don't have a Bible, it's in the chair rack in front of you, page 50 on the right-hand side. Uh, follow along as I read aloud. Luke 7, 1 to 10. After he had finished all his sayings and the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, he is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is one, the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. And when he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me. I say to one, go, and he goes. I say to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him and turned to the crowd that followed him and said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant. Well, you can be seated. So, I think here in this passage, we see three things that are worthy of being emulated. Three things that are really important that the centurion did, got right, understand, understood correctly about what it is to have faith in Jesus. So let's go through those. Let's move our way through the passage here. We're gonna start in verses one through five. And I think the first thing we need to do is examine the centurion. And I, I think the third thing that we can draw out is that in faith in Jesus will cause you you to seek out Jesus in your need. I give you a moment to write that down. I think that's fairly self-explanatory, just based on just reading the passage just a few moments ago, that the centurion has a need. He goes and he goes to find Jesus because he understands something about him. Let's take a few moments and let's consider the centurion, though, because I think he's someone very interesting. So there's a few interesting things to draw out. Verse 3 and verse 9 would highlight to us that he is not Jewish. 
he is a Gentile. Uh, we don't know more beyond that, but he is not someone who would necessarily immediately identify with God's prophet, who is, you know, kind of to be expected in that community. I think also in, Luke, in Matthew chapter 8, we'll get into Matthew 8, the parallel passage, we'll also see that Matthew emphasizes the Gentile nature of the centurion a little bit more. So it's very clear that he's, he's not of the Jewish faith, at least per se. I think also helpful to remind ourselves what a centurion is. Like around Easter time, we all use the word centurion, and if we were all to like look at our neighbor and ask them what a centurion is, I think we might maybe not remember. So Senta being 100, a commander of roughly 100 people. So this is someone of consequence in the Roman military, someone of stature and authority. Um, it's also noted in verse 5 that this person is of means. This person is rich. He helped build the synagogue. Now, to what extent that is true, it's probably not terribly relevant to get into, but he obviously is of quite a bit of affluence. And Historically, this is actually to be expected. Rome tended to pay these kinds of people quite well. Rome really liked peace. That was a thing they really, really liked, and they were willing to pay for that. Um, also noteworthy that they tended to appoint people of character to this role. Uh, I think that's just entertaining. Happy President's Day. Okay, that's my one joke. Okay. Uh, anyway, uh, <laughs> but either way, these people were known for character, and then they got appointed to these roles. Uh, I think it's noteworthy to see that he is a man of character. We'll talk about that in a few minutes. Even the Jewish leaders are speaking well of this guy. That, that's, that's hard. That's, that's not an easy accomplishment. So I think should kind of turn our heads a little bit that even the leaders are coming to bat for him. So he's an unusual person and he needs something. What does he need? Verse 2, he needs someone in his household he needs them to be healed. They are sick and to the point of death and highly valued. Uh, Matthew in chapter 8, Matthew 8, 5 through 13, talks about how this particular servant is paralyzed and suffering terribly. Like there is a very serious medical condition that is occurring. And based on the, the passage that I mentioned earlier in Luke 4, he has heard about Jesus. He understands who he is. And so he naturally seeks him out. Um, it's also noteworthy the way that this servant is described. It doesn't just use the word for servant or slave, the Greek word doulos. And in one spot, it actually uses highly valued or loved. And so there's something a little unusual here. There's, there's a term of affection here that's present. This, this particular person who is ill is, is not just someone who helps out around, someone of great value and, and affection there. Um, very quick, like 30 second aside that I can't get into, but just a friendly reminder that this is not a one-to-one -one analogous situation with slavery as we knew it here in the United States. And so just kind of my quick caveat, there's more to be said there, but just a reminder about that. Next thing to highlight is that the centurion, what does he do? He seeks Jesus out, right? Word is out that Jesus is a person of authority. If we look back at Luke chapter four, we will see a Luke chapter four, verse 37, reports about him went out into every place and in the surrounding region that he is a person of authority. So the centurion's heard about it, is seeking Jesus out. Um, the nature of how he seeks Jesus is interesting, and we'll get into that in a moment, but just for right now, let's just be content with what we have right now, that Jesus is being sought out by his, for his need. The centurion is seeking Jesus out for his need. 
So with that, let's, let's consider some implications to our life right now. I think if we were to, to consider the relevance to our lives at the moment, we're actually very similar to the centurion more than we think. And you might say, well, most of us are Gentiles in this room. Probably, I imagine there might be some exceptions to that, but we can certainly identify with that. But I think more than that, if we were to just go around the room and observe the testimonies of the people in this room, we are a collection of unlikely believers in Jesus. If we're to consider our collective stories and how we came to faith in Christ, we're not always necessarily the people that you would expect. Many of the stories in this room are representative, just like the centurion, of unexpected people to come to Jesus. And I think there is a stereotype out there in the world that if we tell people how we came to Christ, we can dispel that all Christians are just the same. They're just these perfect people who are hypocrites. You know, like on and on the list goes. It's helpful to point out that, that we too have a rather amazing experience as we've come to Christ. We, we too are unique people. So I think it's just helpful to, to consider that for a moment. And it's helpful to realize too that we have needs very similar to the centurion. The centurion has a very specific need. He has someone in his household who is sick and is near the point of death. I think as Christians, we have moments in our lives where there are people who have very serious medical needs in our lives, and we care about them. And we'll get into this in a few minutes, so I'm just going to kind of allude to it. I won't go fully into it right now, but our, our directive is to pray to God in those kinds of situations. But for right now, we need to, to reconcile the tension because we've run into a little bit of a problem here or at least it seems like it could be one. I don't think it actually is. But we look at this and we see several facts. We see a person who has a medical need, they seek Jesus, but they seek Jesus at a distance. And that kind of sounds a little bit like you and I, doesn't it? And as a result of seeking Jesus, they receive healing. And yet, when we consider our lives, that's not always our experience, is it, is it not? It's not always the experience we have in life. Sometimes it is, sometimes it isn't. Never denying the miraculous. And I'll get more into that in a moment. But I think, again, the, the verses that I highlighted previously in Luke chapter, four come, or chapter 5 come to light, where Jesus is instructing people as he heals the paralytic that that healing points back to something deeper. It points back to sin. And, and if you think I'm just going, oh, well, there he goes. He's just pivoting over to sin. I want to stop you right now. And I want to ask you a question if you're thinking that. How did, how did sickness and disease enter the world? How did it all get started? It got started when we decided to sin, right? One man sinned into the world. Like it, it is a reminder. It, it, there are tangible reminders, even here in this passage, of the brokenness of the world, of the curse and Jesus has undone it in this passage, and it is beautiful to see it, but one of the important things we need to realize is that chapter seven functions as a whole. This healing and what is going on in verses one through 10 point forward towards the question that John the Baptist, as I referenced him earlier, John the Baptist asks the question, and he's like, hey Jesus, you, are you the one? And Jesus points to this healing and many others as evidence and proof that he is the Messiah that he says he is. And so this particular instance, the way this happened in verses 1 through 10, were primarily to affirm the claims of Jesus. 
his teaching. And so I think helpful to see and just take a moment and realize that, that Jesus still does heal and still does things. We'll talk about that in a moment. But let's consider for a moment what we, on a regular basis, we seek Jesus for. Now that I've like, you know, totally lost you, don't worry, I'll pick that back up again and we'll keep talking. But things that we practically seek Jesus for, we seek Jesus for salvation, right? Like this is our first encounter with Jesus, if we're in Christ, is seeking him out. We seek him out for forgiveness of sins. So much of Jesus' ministry, and even chapter 7, if you look in just a few, few weeks, we'll be getting to the story of the sinful woman being forgiven. So much of the Gospel of Luke is pointing towards the fact that Jesus is the Savior of sin. He is this, the deliverer from sin, and, and he is the one who can heal us uh, on, on the truest level and the more eternal level. I think it's helpful to see that the first thing we come to Jesus for is for healing and salvation from our sin. But ongoing, like as Christians, like I, I've kind of teased you for a brief moment here. As Christians, we come on a regular basis to Jesus in prayer. This is a normal part of our Christian experience and it is something we're instructed to do. I, I, one of my favorite verses in the Gospel of John is John 16:7 where Jesus, in short, argues, hey guys, it's actually better if I leave. It's better if I leave and that the Spirit come, the Helper comes. You'll be able to approach me and to pray to me and I'll be able to listen to you and answer your prayers like that. There, there's something very beautiful about what we have right now as New Testament believers that not even the people in the New Testament when Jesus was there had. There is an access and a privilege that we have to come before God when anything like this happens, whether, more, whether it be more serious or less serious. And we can approach God in prayer knowing that he hears us and listens. And I want you to very briefly consider several things. I want you to consider that there is still, even in the New Testament, very clear instruction to pray for those who are sick, James 5.14. <laughs> it's not as if Jesus left and then, then we're just kind of fending for ourselves. Uh, there's very clear instruction to pray for those who are sick. Um, practically, this means I, I think we need to get better at praying to God when things arise. Like, I, I know that's, that's very easy, low-hanging fruit, but I'm looking at myself when I'm talking, right? Like, how many days are you just like, well, God didn't do anything? It's like, well, did you talk to God about it? Did you pray about it? Sometimes the answer is embarrassingly no, right? There are many different answers God can give us. Like this passage here, sometimes the answer is miraculous. Like, have you ever been present when you prayed for something and then God did something miraculous? I'm hoping I'm seeing nodding heads. Yes, yes, okay, yeah, okay, yeah, I have too. Like, I, I'm not fishing for answers based on bias. There are times where you pray and then God does things and everyone's like, how did that happen? God worked. That's how it happened. And praise the Lord that that happens sometimes. Other times God uses regular means, right? God uses medicine or doctors or just the change of circumstance. God works in what we would consider kind of ordinary means. He maybe even uses the different mechanisms within our body. I think healing is probably the easiest thing to talk about because it's in the passage here. But God sometimes uses that. Other times the answer is no. And, and I want to remind you, not out of uh, being unkind, but I want to remind you, there are plenty of unhealed people, even in Jesus' time. If, if we flip back just a few pages before in Luke chapter 5, verse 16, he, he in this 
uh, same instance, he, right before cleansing the leper and healing the paralytic, he, he's, he's out there and he is healing, and then he withdraws to desolate places and prays. It's like, oh, that's the end right now. And there are other passages in Luke where he, he emphasizes that his goal is to teach and to do other things. And so there are many people who, who receive no, even in the time of Jesus. And so it's helpful to realize that we need to seek Jesus in our need. Do we know what the answer is going to be? Will it always be what we want? No, of course not. And we all know that by experience. And I don't mean to, to be flippant or, or blunt in that nature, but we all know that. We've all experienced that. I think helpful to see that the centurion, though, directs us rightly in seeking Jesus every time. So that's instructive to us. The second thing that's instructive about the centurion is, is part of his character, part of the way that he behaves. So if we go back to Luke chapter 7, let's look, at, look at, in verses 3 through 6, and let's examine some of the ways that this centurion is behaving, because I think it's very noteworthy, it's instructive to us. His character, let's look at verse 3. So he approaches Jesus indirectly. This is strange. Like, why does he send the elders of the Jews? Why doesn't he just go himself? And then it gets even more strange. He hears in verse 6, Jesus is coming, and he sends his friends outside the house to talk to Jesus instead of himself. Like, what, what is this? And then it potentially makes things even more complicated, because if you flip over to Matthew and Matthew 8, which you don't need to do it now, in that account, it says that the guy had a direct conversation with Jesus. You're like, what, what do I make of all of this? This is very strange. Like, there's something a little odd going on. I don't think it's a textual error. error. I don't think it's going to keep us up at night. But I think it does demonstrate this guy's character. So, specific to the problem of the, the difference between Luke and Matthew, I think Luke is emphasizing something different than Matthew is. Matthew is emphasizing the Gentile nature of this, this centurion. So he's emphasizing the fact that this guy is a centurion. In Matthew chapter 8, there are multiple mentions about how he is a Gentile. And that is kind of the key point that Matthew is trying to draw out. Here in Luke, I think that Luke is trying to draw out the humility of the centurion. I think that is the key point that Luke is trying to draw out in these verses. He's trying to draw out humility. And so, just kind of for the sake of putting it up on the board there, well, seeking out Jesus will cause us to seek him out in humility. I, I think there's something being underscored by Luke about this man's humility. He is genuinely saying in verse 3, by sending the Jewish leaders, he's going, I, don't, I can't have a conversation with Jesus. He's up there. Like, I'm, I'm down here. Like, I'll send some people who are closer up there. Like, I'll send them. Like, I, I'm not in that same strata, is the way he sees himself. And verse 6 kind of falls in line with that. He's going, like, I don't even want you in my house. It's because I don't feel like I... Have you ever had someone in your house where you're just like, why is this person in my house? I feel uncomfortable. Like, that, that's the sensation of just like... I, uh, this, I, you're way too important to be like here with me. Like you've got better things to do. That, that's the picture that this centurion is being painted in here. 
And I, I think he's being very humble. Like, I don't think he's just giving excuses for like, oh, I, I, you know, I haven't gotten my hair ready or anything. Like, I don't think that's what's going on here. He's genuinely saying like, I'm not in the same strata as Jesus. I don't feel like I deserve being in his presence. He's being very humble. I think that's commendable. Like, that's something that is worth being commended and praised. With all of that in mind, let's consider how that relates to us, right? Like, are we also, as Christians, are we to seek out Jesus in humility? Like, is this instructive for us? I think it is. I think that we, as we consider approaching Jesus, we too should be marked by humility. And I would argue that if you've become a Christian, you've had at least one humble moment before Christ it's the moment where you became a Christian and you realized, I'm sinful, I got nothing to add to this. I I need Jesus. And there's a moment of deep humility. It is a moment of realizing that you are someone who is in the presence and being saved by someone who is far greater than you are. I think it's instructive here to see the humility of this man in his first interaction with Jesus. And for many of us, I I would argue that's an essential part of coming to faith in Jesus. As a matter of fact, the opposite of humility, which is pride, is really the death knell of faith in Jesus, right? Like if you are a proud person, you know who you start looking like? You start looking like the people in, in Nazareth in chapter four. You go, I know who you are, Jesus. I know exactly who you are and get out of here. Pride, pride is the thing that dispels and casts faith in Jesus away. And so it's very interesting to see how, how quickly and how humbly this man is approaching Jesus. There's not many other people in the Bible that approach Jesus so humbly. That's instructive to us. I think it's instructive for us if we're Christians, like on our daily lives, we should be people who are marked by humility. Uh, I say it even as I laugh. Um, (laughs) Do you deal with pride? Am I I the only one? Okay, I just add some levity here. Uh, Pride is a, a very serious issue, even as we think about coming to Christ, right? Like I want you to consider for a moment the way you pray. You do this without thinking about it, and I think it should remind you to be humble, but it maybe doesn't. You tack on a phrase at the end of your prayer. I I can almost guarantee it. It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. You ever thought about that? I, I know we talk about it from time to time in Sunday mornings, but like, you're basically saying, God, you're holy, and if I was to come talk to, to you without Jesus, this conversation would not go well. It's a humble admission, is it not? In Jesus' name. Like, I, I gotta have Jesus' perfect record and his substitutionary death. I gotta have that, or else conversation between me and God's not gonna go well. There's humility even in praying to God. And so I wanna ask you, Christian, like, how's your prayer life going? How's your prayer life going? Is it filled with anger, complaining, demanding? It could be a sign of pride. Are, are your prayers just non existent? I think that's, that's another mark of pride. Like, are your prayers largely the same and formulaic? Again, like, could be a mark of pride. Pride is a very, un, a very sneaky thing. It manifests in different ways. And I think we should be reflective as Christians, consider what is going on in our hearts, and repent of pride where needed, right? Like, I'm talking to myself. You think I just came up with those examples out of nowhere? Like, I, I'm speaking from experience in that pride is very dangerous and needs to be constantly repented of. 
So I think it's helpful to see the humility of this guy as he approaches Jesus, and it's destructive for us today as well. And so at this point, you can say, great. The rest of this passage explained by humility. We get to go home a few minutes early. This will be great. But there's a, tr- there's a problem here because verses 7 through 10, they seem at first glance to just be further indication that this guy is really humble. And you can kind of just dismiss the rest of it and be like, oh, it's just his rationalization. He's just a really humble, nice guy. And that's kind of the end of it. But I think there's something more. So let's look at verses 7 through 10, and we'll start with verse 7. In short, the centurion is saying, he he is making the statement that uh, Jesus, you can just go ahead and speak the word, and then my servant will be better. I just want that to sit for a moment. Like he, he's going, just say something, Jesus, and it'll get taken care of. And I, I as a, 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 a Christian who lives in today's day and age, like I want to know how. Like how does he know that that's going to work? Like how does he know? Like what is he thinking? And I, I think if you're asking that question, you're asking the wrong question. I don't think this guy's concerned with how. He's not at all concerned with how. He's just like Jesus could do it, and it doesn't even matter how. I don't know. And and if you really get down to the healings of Jesus, do you understand how Jesus' healings work? Like like somebody who's a paralytic can't walk, like how does that work? They suddenly start walking. Someone who's blind can't see, suddenly seeing. In the, the true honesty of our own heart, like we can't explain it. And I think to him, he's going like, I don't need the explanation. I just want it done and I know you could do it. I think there's something really cool about that. Like, there's something commendable about this guy's faith here. And if we dive a little bit deeper into this, trying to make sense of it, verse 8 is, on the surface, a somewhat confusing verse. In short, he says, my job has taught me how to submit to authority. (laughs) I just said the submit word. Okay, Uh, we'll talk about that in a moment. But he's going, my job teaches me how to be within a structure of authority. So you know what? Jesus, I trust you. Um, I I think this is very interesting. The centurion is saying he understands structures of authority. He understands that Jesus is an authority in this particular area, based on preceding chapter. And he also realizes that he is going to submit himself to Jesus' authority. I I want to just briefly... uh, help you imagine what this might look like if you've been around a small child, or perhaps you have one. Uh, Children are really good at doing something. They're really good at breaking things. If you experience this, really good at breaking things. And it's one of the brief moments of submission in a child's life because they see you, the adults, and they're like, fix it. And so they, they put it in their hands and they raise it up to you and they go, fix it, please. And, you know, whatever it is, the adult takes tape, glue, or just says, sorry, friend, it's, you know, it's plastic, it can't be fixed. Like, they don't know how that's going to go, but they know that the adult has the ability to potentially fix it. And I think that's a beautiful picture of what this guy is doing. He's going, you know what, I don't have the ability to do anything for my servant, but you know what, Jesus, you do. So here you go. Here's my servant. Please help There's this humility of like releasing this need and going, here you go, Jesus. I don't know what you're going to do, but but I need you. And I know that if anyone could do something, you could. It's a beautiful picture. And I want to just take a brief sidebar because there's a fun question here. 
that's worth asking, and I think it's interesting. Does this guy really, like, is he a Christian? Does he understand what it is to have faith in Jesus in the way that we use the word faith? And I think it's a fun question. It's unfortunately not answered in the text. So, I, I, I mean, like, when I read this, I'm like, is this guy a Christian? And I, it seems like, you know, he's got a lot of information about who Jesus is. He seems to have a very deep faith in one specific area in the subject of healing. But is he, does he understand Jesus' relationship to sin and all these other things? I don't know. And so I, I, would, I would hesitate to answer that question, but I think it's just interesting to observe that within the realm of healing, this guy has incredible faith in Jesus, and it is something to be commended. And what's the response? Jesus' response, it's amazement. Verse 9, Jesus heard these things and he marveled at the centurion. He was amazed like this, you know, on my resume, Jesus was amazed by me. Like, that's, that's amazing. Like, you know, to, th- this doesn't come up. There's only one other place in the Bible where this kind of phrase gets used of people. And it's not in a positive way. It's in Mark chapter 6, where Jesus is amazed at the lack of faith in the people in his hometown. And so here, this guy is, is amazing. And Jesus is like, wow, he really gets it. And I think that should draw our attention to it. We should rightfully spend time this morning studying it. And I think if you think about where this guy is at compared to the rest of the class, he's really a cut above. You think about in a few verses in Luke chapter 7, verse 18, John the Baptist is about to ask, like, hey, I'm pretty sure you're the guy, but are, uh, just, just so we're clear, are you the guy? And then the disciples, chapter 8, the wind and the wave, waves are going crazy. Jesus stops it with a word, and they're like, who is this guy? And Jesus rebukes them, and what does he say? He's like, where's your faith, guys? Even the disciples aren't there, but the centurion is, and I think that's something really cool. There's something very exciting about studying someone who gets it so quickly. That's commendable. The other thing that's interesting is that Jesus very practically and very, very tangibly answers this guy's prayer. Like verse 10, like, oh, I, I don't want you to ever not hear me correctly. Like Jesus is capable of healing even at a distance. I'll say it again, just so I don't get accused of, of saying something I didn't. Jesus is capable of healing even at a distance. That, that's incredible. Like, we as New, as New Testament believers, like, we still believe that. It's amazing. The guy comes back, servant's fine. There's something very profound and amazing when God works. Have you ever been in the room where God works? There it is. It's amazing. I, I, that, that's all that to be said about that. And I, I think we should take a moment and ask, like, why is Jesus capable of that? Right? I think part of the reason why is in John 1.3. John 1.3 says, All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Hebrews 1.2 follows along the same line. Through whom also he created the world. Everything you see is in submission to Jesus. Everything relates to him. Everything is under him. There's no rogue molecule or atom. Like, just let's do a quick recap. You don't need to write this down. Just listen. Jesus is over sickness, right? Luke chapter 7. Jesus is over sin. Luke 5.20, the the healing of the paralytic where he instructs them. He has power over sin and forgiveness. 
Luke chapter 4, verse 36, he has power over the spiritual and the demonic. Luke chapter 8, verse 24, he has power over the winds and the waves, over nature, over creation. And I would argue Jesus has control and authority over even just everything, the molecules of the universe, because in Luke chapter 9, Jesus feeds 5,000 people out of thin air. Like he's like, and suddenly food. Jesus has the ability and control over everything. I don't even think the centurion fully grasps that. But you and I, we have the Bible, and so we have the privilege of knowing just how much is under the authority of Jesus. And the answer is everything. There's nothing that's not underneath Jesus. And so I think that's very instructive to us in our final observation from this man, that faith in Jesus will cause us to submit to the authority of Jesus and go, Jesus, you're the one. You're the one who has control over it all. And I think there's going to be several behaviors and things that happen when we understand this, that we understand that Jesus is in control. We're going to understand that Jesus is the ruler of creation and of all created things. He, he is over all of that. He made the world and every person in it. And it, what God chooses to do with the world is his prerogative. He gets to choose to do that. I want you to, for a moment, think about the way we as Christians slip into the tendency of speaking. We speak in the, the, the terms of like mother nature. Yeah, it's just running its course. We speak of the body, it'll just do its thing. These are incorrect statements. God is in control of these things. We need to remember that God is the authority, that Jesus is the authority. We also, as Christians, if we're here gathered on Sunday morning, there's another level of authority that Jesus has over us. He has authority over the church. All throughout the New Testament is, is evidenced in multiple ways. One of the key images that's used is that Jesus is the head of the church. 1 Corinthians 11, Colossians 1, various other places. It's the idea that Jesus gets to command and tell us as Christians what we need to do. Jesus is the one in charge of us. He gets to determine why we're gathered here this morning. He is the purpose of why we're gathered here this morning. And he instructs us to do things that, frankly, if you and I were to come up with a plan by ourselves, we would probably not include, right? Like, uh, just let's take a practical example. I'm not trying to pick on the 9 a.m. hour, but it's easy because it just happened, right? Like, if we were to invent the commands of the church, would we really include evangelism? I mean, that's kind of uncomfortable, get us in some dangerous situations. Are you sure we really want to include that? Jesus, one of his concluding words, though, is go. Go tell. Like, it, it is not an option. It's not like, oh, we'll see if I can get around to it. Jesus is in control, and he has authority over the church. And now, I've referenced it already, if we're getting honest with ourselves, he has authority over us, right? Like, we can't not have a discussion about the authority of Jesus and realize that his authority extends to even us. And you might say, Eric, you're just kind of beating me up at this point, right? Like, things have been fine at the beginning, but it's, just, it's kind of getting a little out of hand. Uh, there is the sense of, like, okay, point number one is take everything to Jesus in prayer because you're needy. Point number two is, is be humble because you're really nobody and you're broken. And then point number three is, oh, by the way, you're not in control and you're not even the authority, and that could seem like the worst news you've heard all morning, but as Christians, I, I see smiles. Like, you know it's actually the best news you've heard all morning. Right, it's the best news you've heard all morning because if you're needy, guess what? Verse nine, Jesus answers. He listens. 
said, I think we've grown far too comfortable with that, far too used to the fact that Jesus listens and, and Jesus answers our prayers when we're needy and we come to him. That's so cool. God, God answers our prayers. And then when we're humble, what happens? Do we get chewed out? Do we, do we get reprimanded? No, we, we, we receive mercy. Verse six, Jesus comes to us. God shows us kindness and mercy when we're humble. I think that's really beautiful. And if we're submissive to him, guess what? He's got the authority and the ability to help us. Like he's the one who can actually do something. Isn't it great to not be in control sometimes? You know, like have you ever had a job where you're not the boss? It's great. You're like, I, I mean, I'll try. We'll see how it goes. I think there's this sense of, of Jesus is in control. We're going to do everything we can to follow out his orders and to do the things that he's commanded us to, but he's ultimately the one who's, who's in charge. And I think there's a great source of comfort, comfort in that. And I think if you're not a Christian, my, my commendation to you as you're hearing all of this is to continue to study Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7 continues to paint the picture of what it is to have faith in Jesus. And it concludes with the forgiveness of sins. It, it zeroes in on the very nature of salvation. And this is but the introduction to that. And if you're a Christian this morning, the encouragement from this passage is to run to Jesus this week. Like you don't know what's in front of you this week. But you know your Savior, you know Jesus, he is an amazing God, and you, if you have faith in him, can trust that he's in control, that he's good, that he's loving, that he's kind, that he hears your prayers, and that Jesus continues to work. Like, Jesus didn't just go on vacation. Jesus isn't hitting the voicemail. Jesus isn't leaving your text messages on read. All kinds of analogies for the idea that Jesus very much so still listens to you even this week. So whatever it is, Christian, Take it to the Lord in prayer. We know that that is our right, to, or our privilege to do it, and yet we have the obligation and the, the privilege to do that as well. I think it's something very beautiful. So as we consider just concluding our morning together, I think very encouraging to look through the rest of where this chapter is going to go. We get a very clear picture of how amazing Jesus is. And I hope as you studied the centurion and saw his amazing faith that you saw how amazing Jesus was as well. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you are far more good, far more powerful than we can try to explain in 20 or 30 minutes. God, you're far more amazing, and even the centurion who really seems to grasp who you are, we can't still fully grasp how wonderful you are. We sing songs about it, we, we pray and we praise you, even right now as we're in prayer, and yet it doesn't fully encapsulate how wonderful you are. Thank you for that you're capable, that you are, you are a good God, that we can come to you, arms outstretched, handing you our needs, knowing that you answer, knowing that you act, trusting you, trusting you in all things. Thank you for the joy of faith in you and the many ways in which you graciously love us even, um, even right now. Pray that as we head into the week that you would grant us wisdom, you would grant us strength, the ability to be able to reach out to you, and pray that as we see you act, we, we anticipate that you will, that you would allow us to pause and to praise you for that. In your son's name we pray. Amen.